Welcome to the Connection Project Podcast. My name's Matt. And I'm Lauren. And together, we are bringing humanity together through conversation. Because together, we are stronger. This next episode is going to be mind-blowing, and we are super grateful to have you join us. How good is living, Lauren? Booyah! Alrighty guys, we are here on episode three of the Connection Project podcast. We have Mr. Paul Pegler, the director of Start Training, someone who has become quite a influential figure in my life, who has an absolute ripper story, which we're going to get into today. Um, but I'm going to let Paul introduce himself in two minutes. Who's Paul Pegler? And then we'll dive into your story from there. Oh, who's Paul Pegler? Yeah. Two, I only have two minutes. That's it, because oh, I know you'll go forever. You, you are a hard <laughs> taskmaster. Um, Paul, Paul Pegler is, is a number of things, I think. First and foremost, I like to think of myself as a, as a dad, as a, as a good husband, as someone who, who provides and takes a lot of pride in, in, in helping and to provide for others. Uh, Paul Pegler is a obsessive, compulsive uh, healer, I think is probably a good way. I do what I do because I am obsessed with puzzles and fixing things, <laughs> much to my own mental detriment <laughs> a lot of the time. Um, I love a challenge. Um, I'm also a business owner, a, a mentor, um, someone who takes a lot of pride out of seeing uh, other people kind of succeed. That's probably one of the biggest things I've taken out of uh, my business, my work, is, is, is the team that mm-hmm. I surround myself with and seeing them grow. I'm a, I'm a massive believer that that work is something that we, we, we have to do. So I try to develop an environment that promotes development and growth and where people want to enjoy being there like I I always say to my to my team all the time you know this idea of you know if you do what you love you'll never work a day in your life is a bit of a fallacy yeah the reality of the situation is is if you have to do it that's what pays your bills pays your mortgage pays whatever it is it eventually becomes a chore it eventually becomes something that you have to do and you know, the human mentality is if I'm told I have to do it, I eventually resent it. Mm. So I try to develop an environment where my team enjoy having to do it. So what I tell them all the time is, you know, there's no such thing as working, doing what you love, never working a day in your life. It's about if you have to do it, do something you love and mm. it makes it worthwhile. Absolutely. It makes it beneficial. And, and so I think that's one of the big things I try, you know, that mentoring from that point of view, I try to, to lead by example with my mm. team and go, we've got to do this, we've got to be here, let's enjoy it, you know, let's move forward. Yeah, that's Paul Pegler, I guess, in four minutes. Four minutes. <laughs> so I wanted to bring up how we came to meet. So I have myself some sports injuries uh, and came to see Paul for a bad back and noticed the synergies and the energies and very similar opinions on a lot of life's matters Uh, one we'll get into later is the obvious big one around mental health and human connection and the in turn mental illness that comes with the lack of that 
Um, but what I really got out of it was that Paul was working from 5 a.m. till 6 p.m. in his practice, back-to-back the clients, and had the same energy, brought the same vibes uh, and effort to every single client, whether it was an 85-year-old frail lady or a 19-year-old uh, Olympian. There was always the same sort of level of care. And I wanted to ask you where you're as busy as you are, where do you pull the energy from? Because there's a lot of people out there that want to do something, uh, whether that be run an amazing healing practice like this or it may be the, be the best you know, uh, carpenter in Australia, whatever it may be. Where do you pull your energy and your drive from? Because I'm someone who thinks the word purpose has been killed by marketing yeah. books over the last 10 years. We're, telling, we're now telling people that they need to have a world-altering purpose yeah. when, in fact, it might not be the case. What's your thoughts uh, around that? Look... I've thought about this because we've had this discussion before. Um, I think where a lot of my energy comes around working with with all of my patients is, I mean, I, I have a lot of gratitude, and I know gratitude is a word that's put out there, and you need to find gratitude. Mm. But you know, I feel very privileged to work with every patient. I feel very privileged that that person has come to me and has valued my opinion on possibly at, at times the, where they are in the worst parts of their life. Like we see the worst in, in people's personalities when they're in pain. That's mm-hmm. the reality of the situation. Like when we're in pain, when we're, when we're not able to do what we want to do, you know, it affects us massively. It affects our, our, our mood, it affects our energy, it affects our, our, our everyday life. So a lot of that comes from a, a feeling of privilege to, 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 that they've come to me to try to fix it. And, and with that privilege comes a responsibility. Mm. You know, if you come to me with a problem, with an issue, whatever it is, is, is I have a responsibility to give you the most that I can give you. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's a real privilege to be allowed to try I um, I'm also obsessive compulsive <laughs> I, I yes. Um, yes you are I don't do not fixing things mm. I, I don't mm. cope well with not being able to, to, to help um, and a lot of it comes uh, and another area which we've talked about Matt in the past is a lot of it comes from you know my my upbringing and my my background, mm. where I struggled for a lot of years with a number of different things, which has eventually led to this kind of this this privilege, this 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 need to, to fix. Um, uh, for many years, it was a negative thing. Um, I had this uncontrollable need to prove myself um, to people, and I had this real kind of. Um, had this real kind of issue to, to, to show people that, that I was good at what I did mm. you know now I grew up and, and through schooling and things like that I grew up thinking I was a little bit a little bit different a little bit you know I thought I was dumb I thought I was inintelligent and a lot of it came around later in and I'll tell the whole backstory now it came because of that, of a diagnosis around uh, dyslexia. So I went through all of my schooling and my high schooling feeling that I was <clears throat> dumb. And, uh, and, and worse than feeling I was dumb, feeling 
hugely frustrated, mm. massively, massively frustrated, because in my head, I knew I was intelligent. In my head, I knew I understood things, and I understood, and I, I was sitting class at high school, and I would go, you know, I would see things clear as day that other people weren't understanding, and I would go, I understand, and this is, you know, this is easy. And I would go into exams and I would, I would do things and I'd be like, yeah, look, I've, I've nailed that, I've aced that. And I would fail. Mm. And I failed continuously. So my entire schooling in Ireland, I went through with this real conflicted feeling of going, you are intelligent, but every external examination, every marker by which we're held up in society to show intelligent shows you done. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I failed. I was a failed student right up until my final my final year at school. Now in Ireland, whether it be a curse or a blessing, the the way the system runs is there's no continuing assessment. There's no coursework. There's no rolling grading. At the end of your final year, your year twelve equivalent, you do your what they call the leaving cert. So it's three weeks of exams, two exams a day, three hours an exam. Your results in that will dictate what you get. Now, blind stubbornness meant that I wanted to go on and I wanted to do uh, a sports physio uh, degree. Mm -hmm. So six months leading up to the exams, they did the pre-exams and I failed every one of them. So I got my requirements for university were I needed A's, I needed two A's in physics and biology. I needed a third A in a other non-science, um, English or something like that, and I needed two Bs. So I needed three A's, two Bs to get in. So my grades six months before sitting the exams to get those grades were two Ds and Fs. Failed everything. I got a 27% in biology. Oh, man. And <clears throat> I got a 34% in physics. Mm. So everyone at the school told my parents, look, the same things. He's either uh, look. He's a smart kid. He just he's just lazy. He doesn't apply himself. I had the same report card. <laughs> yeah. Or or which was even better. Going. You know. He tries. Mm. He's just not that. It's smart. Not quite there yet. You know. So every every single teacher advised my parents to to make me drop mm. to pass or intermediate classes and you know give up on the the uni. So I uh, refused, and luckily my parents were nothing but supportive. Like mm. My parents turned to me and going, look, your grades are terrible. They weren't, you know, they were harsh, admittedly, and they were mm. going, you need to sort your life out, but what do you want to do? And I was like, oh, I need to get into this. Mm. So we studied, I did um, tutoring and things like that, and I, I knuckled down, pushed hard, and I ended up getting the grades. So somehow I don't know, out of no idea how, in a six-month period of time, I just, just blind stubbornness, head down, got what I needed to get to. Went to uni, same thing. And, and in uni, I think that the start of, of where this, this privilege mm. came for, because there was a moment, or there was about a 12-month period where I think I reached the bottom. You know, I I was at uni. I'd never left um, my hometown, which is a little little town called Skibbereen in Southern Ireland. It's a population of about eleven hundred people. The biggest building is a three-story building. <laughs> um, 
you know, I have no exposure to the greater world. I've never been out mm. of this tiny little little village in, in rural Ireland. I now find myself in London. So uh, my old man took me to London, stayed with me for the weekend, but the Monday morning he back to Ireland. So I found myself alone in London. Um, my parents were amazing parents and how they supported me, but financially it was just a pressure that they, mm. they couldn't fully manage. So I had to support myself. So mm. I, I was in London um, with a little bit of money to start with, no job, no friends, no family, overwhelmed, started uni, same process, was failing classes, was struggling to comprehend what was going on. Had developed a real, um, a real kind of animosity towards academia. Um, hit a real depression in my first year of uni. Just, just everything. I started believing the hype. Yeah. You know, maybe you are dumb. Maybe you're not meant to be there. Maybe you are stupid. You keep telling yourself you're smart. You keep telling yourself you're intelligent, but everything you do says otherwise. Says otherwise. Yeah. Every grade you get says otherwise. Every time you do something, you're bottom of the class. Like. You're bottom of the class, you've got no money, you know, you're not eating, you're eating once every three days, maybe, because you can't afford, mm. you know, it was it was a real low point and and so I went through that real dark period of, of depression and, and as a result like a real anxiety around um, doing anything, of putting myself out there, mm. you know, because in my head I'm, I'm, I'm telling myself that every time you put yourself out there, you're failing, you're failing, you're failing, don't, don't do it. And interestingly enough, where the story turned was in my first semester in my second year. So I submitted a bit of coursework, a call to the office of the lecturer who I hadn't had before, and uh, it was the first time he'd ever looked at any of my work, and he turned around and he goes, can, you just, can we have a meeting, I just want to talk to you about your coursework. So I turned up at the meeting, and he goes, oh, look, I just want to have a chat about it. And I said, hey. He goes, look, it was brilliant. It was an insightful piece of, of work. He says, it was, the ideas you've got are, are fantastic. It's looking at a, a problem from an angle that we've never thought, you know, it's brilliant. So, of course, I turned around and said, so I got an A. He goes, no, God, fuck no. He said, it was terrible, I couldn't read it. And I was like, what do you mean you couldn't read it? He goes, I couldn't read it. Yeah. He said, if I gave this to a person who doesn't understand the subject... They would ask me why I'm handing them a 12-year-old's report. Mm. Like it's, he said it was terrible. But he turned around to me and he goes, I don't mean this to insult you. He says, I'm not saying it's terrible because to go, you're, you're useless and you're dumb. He goes, I think there's a problem. So I'd never thought about dyslexia. It was never something that was brought up. Ireland at the time never recognized it as a mm. legitimate condition. So he sent me off. He goes, I have a friend of mine who works in the psychology department at the university. I want you to go see them. So I went off and saw them. And so they did all of the assessments and they did all the teachings. And they they did the, a reading, writing IQ. So I'm not sure how it's done now. But back then, you they measured IQs in a, in a number of ways. You're meant to have the same IQ, irrespective. So there's deductive reasoning. And mm. they use things where they use psychometric testings plus reading, writing. So I did a reading, writing IQ. And I came back at like the 48, <clears throat> 52 percentile. Mm. A little bit below average. Yeah. You know what I mean? You know, you're not stupid, but... You know, you're not the smartest yeah. person in the room. Yeah. You're, you're about average or a little bit below average IQ. 
But then they did the deductive reasoning psychometric testing. Mm. And she was like, you've scored off the chart. Yeah. She was like, your IQ based on this is in the top 2 to 5% mm. IQ in Great Britain. And she was like, that doesn't happen. Mm. You don't you don't have this this way of looking at things and, and processing information and then be this mm. low in how you process information. So she's like, that's how we determine dyslexia. Because I feel that this is the problem. So they determined that I was auditory and visually dyslexic. So my abilities to, to read and write and to to speak a lot of the time um, were, 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 were jumbled and mixed up. And, and that's what was causing a lot of these problems that in my head, by the time it left my brain mm. to the paper, it was completely jumbled and made no sense. And people just couldn't read it. They just couldn't understand what I was trying to to say. And um, and so she was like, look, moving forward, we need to do all of these things. So for the first time, I kind of, I looked at it and I was like, it wasn't just me. Mm. You know, it was something else and something that I could work with. And it wasn't else. And I kind of looked at it going, well, that's not out. That's outside my control. That's who I am. And for the first time, I kind of looked at it and stopped thinking about what other people thought. Mm. You know, thought, I know I'm smart, but everyone thinks I'm dumb, so I must be dumb. Because that's how you think when you're in that mentality. Mm. And for the first time in my life at 21, 22 years of age, I, um, I flipped and I went, it doesn't matter. This proves that you are intelligent. So now you need to use that. Yeah. You know, you need to work. You need to use this. Uh, and it, it, it changed from there and it worked from there. And, you know, I drove my other academic lecturers mad because <laughs> I was getting, now we're into the practical stuff and the sports therapy degree. And I was just like, just top of the class. Mm. I, was, I was lecturing. I was helping to teach practical classes the second years and fourth year and in my, or my third year. And, you know, and they were like, if you just applied yourself, if you did more, mm. You know, you could be so you could do masters, you could do PhDs, and I was like, that's not where I want to be. Yeah. Academia for me was, you know, it was a, a thing that just didn't drive me anymore. Yeah. Because I knew that I was more than the book. I knew I was more than the, the exam and the test. Yeah. And I just needed to get out. And and so going back to the beginning of the story, the whole idea of like when these people and where does my energy come from? And when I say I've got that that it's a privilege to work with them. Mm. You know what I mean? Like that's what I mean it's like I have something and I know that I, I I have something that can benefit this person you know I look at things a different way I I I know that academically and book wise I may not have been as smart but I know that my brain works differently yeah. and I feel it's a responsibility to help that person yeah. you know so when somebody comes to me with the ache the pain the question the problem I feel so privileged that they've come but I also feel I have a responsibility. Fix them. Fix them. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I know kind of going through that process and going through that depression and going through that, you're stupid, you're dumb, you're thick, you don't know what you're doing, to suddenly going, no, you're not dumb, you're not thick, you're not stupid. You have a gift that you need to nurture, to develop, and mm. then to put yourself in a position that, that benefits others. Mm. Like, you have that responsibility. And when people come to you... They put their trust in you. Because as I said before, people are in their worst when they're in pain. So to come to you and to trust you to do something when they're in that pain, it's a huge honor and a privilege. Mm. 
And so a lot of my drive to do it now comes from from that honor privilege of that person has saw fit to, to, to come to me mm. and that responsibility of knowing that you can you can help. I hobbled in on my first you, session. <laughs> you got I think I hobbled crawled for my first six. <laughs> so it was it was interesting and it you know, I think one of the big things is I look back now and that's one of the big bits of advice is you know, the the quote Churchill, like when you're going through hell, all you can do is keep going. Yeah. You can't look back when you're on the bottom. But when I look back now, it was because I was at the bottom mm. is what changed it. It takes a pain point for some, doesn't it? It does. And and like that's my advice to people is is when you're at rock bottom, you know, and when you have those dark thoughts and, and when you're thinking that the only thing that's positive is to go have a nap or to go sleep, mm. you know, and I think that's the thing that you need to realize in that depression is when you're that dark and you're that low, the only respite, the only thing that seems worthwhile is to sleep. Mm. And when that doesn't become a thing, then you start entering a really bad place. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, and, and I was there. I was in that I didn't want to do anything. I just wanted to, I would get through the motions. I would put that face on. I would go to uni. But the best part of my day was when I got to go to bed. Thank so bed. I would get home at midday and go to bed for six hours, wake up, maybe eat something, go back to bed. Mm. Because that was the respite. And, and when you're going through that, Nothing. You you can't perk yourself up. Yeah. The only thing to to say is is if you keep going, you will realize that that challenge, that thing, it's the thing that will make you better. Hmm. You know, and and it's a cliche to Do go with the yeah. It's a cliche to go with the with the you know this idea of whatever doesn't you know kill you makes you stronger the sad thing with the depression is it's it's not a cliche it's 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 a reality yeah if you can just keep going i'll guarantee you that at that lowest point at that point where you are in your darkest place that's the point where you're being being kind of molded into something mm. that adversity that pressure that 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 thing there when you when you get through the other end, it's that strength that that makes you something else. So, you know, I, I look back now and when I learned all about this dyslexia and I learned that, you know, I had something positive to give, that that you know, adversity that I'd gone through kind of spurred me then to push forward. Yeah. You know what I mean? And going, No, you can do better, you can be better, you can you go more. better, you have <clears throat> more. Mm. You know what I mean? You, this has made you a person that can cope better with it. This is, you know, and I think the thing about it is, 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 is there's no embarrassment around it. There's nothing to look back against it. You know, I, I look back on those days and with two things. One is I never want to go back there. Mm. So I constantly drive to push forward. But I have dark days. You know, I think it's one of those things when you've... You know what they talk about when you touch the void. Yeah. When you touch the void, a piece of you it stays with you forever. So I have dark days when I go back. Yeah. Where you go, fuck. You know, everything is just a bit shit, and everything's a bit, you know, full on. And like we were talking about, I've just opened this new clinic. Mm. You know, there's always a bit of self doubt that that is always there. But the two things I always go is going. I know how bad the void is, and I never want to go back. 
Yeah, well, there's no real cure for it, is it? You can't no, cure depression not. once you've once so it's you've there. Gotta, so that's right. You gotta, you gotta. I'm not saying embrace it, but you gotta recognize it as part of you that's made you where you are. Mm. And the other part of what I think about is I've survived that. Mm. This yeah. now is not as bad as that. It's as and if I have, as that, isn't that, it? It is. It completely of, is. You're the sum of all your parts, and, and one of your parts that, is depression. That's right. And sometimes you have to, back to gratitude, almost have gratitude for it. Mm. Because, as I said, the two things I always think about is going, I know how bad it is and I don't want to go back there. So I always strive to go, to go forward. But I accept it. Yeah. If I ignore it, it creeps up on you. I go, it was bad and I was depressed, but... I got through it and I don't want to go back there and the second thing is always it made me Absolutely, I can yeah. face the adversity and so in my in my in my times when I I sit there and I look at the clinic and I look at where we're going going oh you know the bills rack up and the the vases are due and mm. stuff like that I can look back and I can go I was worse. Yeah. I was in a worse place. Well, I could so easily not be here. And I got through it. Yeah. And and and, and, and that's right. And you are thankful for. Mm. You are thankful for those moments. What did I say? I'm thankful for every moment from then to now. Yeah. Well, it sounds weird, but I'm thankful for my days where I was heavily suicidal because I would, yeah. wouldn't be doing this today or that's right. any of what I'm doing. And and that's it. One thing um one thing I want to get your opinion on is yeah. you know I'm very passionate about mental illness and in particular depression and the the discussion that australia is in at the moment and has been for some time is that depression is caused by a drop in serotonin levels and if we can take a tablet then that will fix our depression when i'm someone who thinks yes maybe let's say 10 percent of those suffering from depression are a serotonin imbalance but 90 percent of us are suffering from an environmental depression whether it's yourself going through being diagnosed with dyslexia yeah. whether it was me going through the loss of human connection after i lost my best friend or whether you know there's a there's a magnitude of reasons i think what we're doing now is very dangerous but very needed is we're ripping the safety blanket away yeah. from those that are saying my depression is caused by a serotonin drop in my mind or my brain my chemistry there's nothing i can physically do about that that's just who yeah. i am so i need to take this white tablet yeah Thoughts? i think i think there's a number of ways to look at it, and this is this is my my opinion, and and I I take the opinion from how I ad- approach most problems in the clinic and most musculoskeletal pain problems and that in the clinic, and that's there is always a cause and effect, mm-hmm. or there is always a cause and a symptom. Um, I think 100% that serotonin and drops in serotonin levels have a huge impact to play in depression. Mm-hmm. I think it's very, it's a very scary, slippery slide mm. if we link a hundred percent the drop in serotonin as the cause and not the symptom. Yeah, I think one hundred percent. If we can identify the serotonin drop and and give supplementation to it to to bolster and to boost it, brilliant and wonderful and great. But I think we need to address cause mm. and not symptom. Now, in the same way of if somebody comes into the clinic with nondescript, um, non-acute pain, which has manifested over the course of the last three months and now I can hardly walk, the pain is the problem. That's what they're feeling from a, 
from a physio or a treatment point of view, we address the pain and remove the pain. The issue is, is if we don't remove the dysfunction, the, the movement dysfunction, the, the neuromuscular patterning, the weaknesses, whatever it may be, we run the risk of that pain coming back. Mm. Now, if we mask the pain without intervention, we run the risk of the pain coming back even worse. Tenfold. So I think it's important to recognize, and I say this continuously to the clinic, mm. to all of my guys, you need to look at all scenarios, not from a black and white, right and wrong. There, there is no right and there is no wrong. Mm. There is a, a better and a worse option. And, and there, is, there is a lot of the times a lot worse and a lot better option. I think how you need to address with the serotonin thing is you go, there's a chemical imbalance that we can address now. Two questions. One, what's caused it? Two, what's the better as opposed to the worst option? So to give two scenarios, there is a 100% genetically related chronic clinical depression caused by an inactivity of the production of serotonin. Mm, definitely. Just genetically. So the best option is to treat with serotonin because of the body's inability to produce it, full stop, genetically. But mm. as a supplementation to this, because you have to look at why we produce serotonin in the first place and what its purpose within the body is. And then what we need to do is we need to supplement that with scenarios and environments that are going to maximize its effect. So why do we produce it under certain circumstances, you know, the happy hormone, and we put the person into, into positions and environments where the body would normally associate a production of serotonin, and then we get a better use. Does that make sense? Yeah. So if I put you into happy scenarios, happy situations, you know, whether it be, be you know, um, surrounded by friends or, 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 or into into scenarios where I find joy and happiness out of. So if I'm supplementing with serotonin, I put you more into this connection with people. Yeah. What it does is it stimulates the connection. Um, the easiest way to explain it in, in my lingo is um, from a stabilizer and rotator cuff point of view in the body, you know, stabilizers perform a particular movement. So we can isolate that and, and, and that muscle will work. The problem is, is in a functional setting, that muscle doesn't work in its movement. It does lots and lots and lots of things to stabilize yourself while your body does stuff. So in a very, very simple manner, there's no point isolating a rotator cuff muscle because it never works in isolation, yeah. in functional life what I need to do is I need to isolate it and then I need to make it work in its normal functional setting mm. that's what I mean with the serotonin we need to supplement the serotonin yep. and then we need it to be working in its normal functional setting mm. so the best case is supplement and then we replace it now that is a scenario I believe that there is not a that that is not the number one reason mm. does that make sense yep. I believe that there is a large situation where 
the body is not being exposed to these kind of scenarios that promote positive production of serotonin and there's this use it or lose it type situation where if I'm not producing it my production decreases more and more and more now the problem is is by supplementing serotonin in that situation as the primary cause the issues now arise is my body doesn't know when it should be doing it itself Mm. and just like taking other supplementations you know what I mean the body is lazy if I take if I take testosterone supplementations it's a, it's a proven fact my body stops producing testosterone. Why? Because like, eh, I'm getting it from this yeah. injection. I don't need to do it. If I'm supplementing a lack of serotonin because my body has just stopped producing it, not because it can't, my body's going to produce less. Mm-hmm. And what's going to happen is we're going to have to up and up and up and up a dose until eventually you get to a point that the body becomes resistive and now it's like masking an injury that now comes back 20-fold. Yeah. However, if we place these individuals into positions where the demand and the need and the requirement, and we stress the need for supplement for, for serotonin production, and as a secondary marker, we, we, we bolster and we help by supplementation, yeah. then I think we get far better results. So as I said, there's no better or worse. There's no scenario where, oh, it's wrong to give serotonin, and mm. there's no scenario where it's right to give serotonin. There's no right and wrong. Yeah. It's just better and worse scenario. And I think we really need to... But what's interesting is the end result is the same. Yeah. It's all about placing the individual into environments whereby they will naturally desire and want to produce that hormone. The ones that can't, we supplement with. The ones that can, we help. If they're in that depressive state, we help to, to raise up from. Well, it's like at the, while we're recording this, there's fires burning all over the country. And if the firefighters were just to shoot the water at the top of the flames, eventually the fire's going to go out, but the ground's still going to be hot embers and the fire can yeah, yeah. re-enlight at any stage. But if we wet the flames, but we also spray water at the base, if the root of the cause, yeah. then the fire's out. So it's the same with the, the mind, I guess, yes. if, we, if we put your analogies together, if we can... A supplement some of the serotonin production at the body. Yes, but we need to be we need to be hitting the causes as well. So, 100%. what's your top three causes of depression? Regard uh, sort of disregarding serotonin for a second. Yeah. Is it is it connection? Is it work? Is it uh, this word that we know? I'm not a very big fan of in purpose. Like, what's yeah. your top three? I think oh, it, it's hard. It's hard to to give them as a word. Like, I think I think number one is inadequacy. Mm-hmm. I think, now this isn't in order of importance, just, yeah. I think number one is inadequacy. I think our feeling of not enough is a huge driving force. We, we see it every day. We've got, you know, Insta-famous and we've got Facebook and Facebook life and, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and, 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 and as a people, we sit there and we have this, this feeling of inadequacy. Yeah, I'm not I'm where, not I, should where be. I should be. This person's doing so much better than I am. I should be doing more. Why am I smarter? Why am I richer? Why am I better looking? Why am I, you know? Yeah, all of them. I think inadequacy is a hu- has a huge role to play. I think our lack of conversation mm-hmm. has a huge role. I think right now we have lost the ability to have both positive and negative meaningful conversations. Mm-hmm. I think 
our, our, our abilities to criticise and to be criticised and to have um, debate yeah. with another person has been massively affected. It's, it's easy for me to go onto the internet, voice an anonymous opinion, cut somebody down and walk away. Yeah. There's almost this, there's no longer this mutual kind of drive to benefit each other. There's this one-upmanship. Mm-hmm. I'm smarter than you. I'm better than you. I will cut down your. I will cut down your 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 argument just because. You know what I mean? I think we've lost the humanity. Yeah. yeah. Like we've 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 stopped looking at each other as a person with a with an opinion that we should talk about, discuss, try to, you know. And it's 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 this you against me. And, and I feel that, that as a result, we've lost human connection. And mm. that's led to a lot of depression. Yeah. I think that leads to this, this feelings of isolation and this, these feelings <clears throat> of just kind of withdrawnness. Mm. Um, In the latest report, they found that 50% of Australians experience loneliness once a week. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. That's it. And then I think the third one, which has, has a big role with... with um, depression is our core values have shifted. Mm-hmm. I feel that the pursuit of of material things, which which ties into the first, the inadequacy. Yep. I think our core values have shifted. I think we, you know, 50, 60 years ago. I'm not saying it wasn't depression then, but the core value was to was to the family and to the 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 protection of kids and we want to have a nice home it doesn't have to be a big home as long as I've got a roof over my head I'm providing food and I'm mm-hmm. providing you know the, the family nucleus the, the everything was done to eat dinner around the table with the family everything was, was, was done I did everything so that I could spend time with the kids on the weekend yeah. you know what I mean our core values it's you know again it's a pure cliche but it's work to live live to work you know mm. our core values back then were were we were successful if we had a meaningful relationship with our our wife or our husband or our partner you know our children were looked after um, and I was I was able to you know play sport or play with the kids in the backyard then life was a success yeah now yeah we judge ourselves based on on <coughs> external uh, material wealth mm. and, and and to be honest with you I think a big a perfect example of this is this whole entrepreneurialism drive yeah you know you're not a success unless you're prepared to go three days without sleeping yeah you're a success because you work harder than that person I you think know, success you're is an entrepreneur. sleep. That's right. You're an entrepreneur. Yeah. If you're an entrepreneur, you're hustling more than this person. Mm. You know, if you're not prepared to be up an hour before and go to bed an hour after, then you're not, you know what I mean? Yeah. And the reality of that is, is I sit there and I go, I went to bed early. I, you know, so we, we, we stop going, or I went home early, or I, I left later. And it's not about, yeah, I got to spend time with the family, I got to spend time with this. It's, it's me and my circle. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, I'm now comparing myself to no longer deeming my success based on four, five, six people, my close family and friends. I'm now 
determining my success based on on eight billion people. Mm. Have I done more than this person? Have I worked harder than this yeah. person? Have I driven? You know, yeah. where's my hustle? Where's my drive? And and that leads to burnout, mm. and that leads <clears throat> to exhaustion. And the problem is, is that's also proved to lead to serotonin drops, which leads to depression. So I think one of the things to remember with depression is sometimes it's not about being sad. Yeah. You know, and that's, if I was to put to, 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 to put it down to a thing, like we hear depression, we go, oh, you're sad. You know, you lost somebody, you know, mm. like you, Maddie, you lost your best friend. You should be depressed. Mm. And I understand why you're depressed, yeah. or or you don't have a job, you don't have. A, I can see why you're depressed. But what we what we never recognise as depression is the guy who's worked eighty hours a week is physically, emotionally, and psychologically exhausted from from pushing to achieve a status that he feels is important based on how society will judge him. Yeah. So he's never depressed. He's just tired from the hustle of trying to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. Whereas the reality is, it's probably one of the leading causes of depression. Yeah. And the scary thing is, we don't recognize it as depressed until it's so bad that one day... It leads to suicide. Yeah. So they're the three things, I think. We had a, um, we had a long discussion oh, six months ago about adrenal fatigue. And I walked in <laughs> to get my back fixed and we sat down for about an hour and you're like... Your back's fine. Yeah. Your body hates you. Your body hates you, yeah. Your mind is pushing you too yeah. far. Um, and it is something, you know? Yeah, oh, that was my... I've had a few realisation points in my life, but that was definitely one of them. I was like, okay, cool. If I'm going to make this impact of lowering suicide rates, then I need to be filling my own cup. Yeah. Um, but to tidy up, Paul, is two things. Best advice you can give to someone who hasn't gone through a pain point because yeah. not all of us are going to go through pain points like both of us have to find their uh, their, their drive and, and what they want to achieve. So best advice you can give to someone around, you know, without using the word purpose, finding what they enjoy doing. We talk about the Life Warriors program that you're helping us yeah. create is finding a child's value and then a skill set within that value and then how to then implement that skill set yeah. into society. So, what it, in a, you know, in a very small period of time, your best little piece of advice you can give to someone today who might be listening who is potentially going through uh, a, a low point in their life um, through lack of drive? Yeah. I think number one is... Everyone, it's not about purpose, but everyone has that something. Mm. Yeah? And I think you need to realize that, that when you're depressed and when you're down, stop telling yourself to buck up, to, 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 to stop telling yourself that you need to pull, snap out of it. You need to tell yourself that this process will help me in the long term and write and I have something meaningful Mm. and it will happen and just keep going and not to be scared to turn around and go I feel lost or I feel I feel like I'm I'm treading water or you know talk to somebody you know the most important thing that I can tell you is that sometimes the person, the best person to find your purpose or your your special thing is not you. Mm. So when you're at that down point and when you're in that point, that hopeless point, 
remember that you are worthwhile and sometimes it's somebody else that will show it to you in the same way with me Hmm. so it's not about buck up it's not about you need to turn yourself around you need to harden up you need to pull yourself out of this sometimes you need to tell yourself that I can't do it but somebody can Hmm. so you open yourself up to that that'd be my, my my biggest bit of advice yeah I love that and lastly uh, obviously one of the best therapists in Australia gone from failing university best therapist in Australia where can people come to get treatment learn about you learn about your amazing team you've got here yeah. courses give them a quick spill on where they can find you so we're uh, we've just relocated to our, our main uh, HQ HQ flagship clinic <laughs> in Stafford we're just located at um, the Gorillas NFL Club which is on Bavara Street just off Webster Road um, and honestly, one of my driving passions is not only the treatment and the helping of, of clients, but it's the development of the new EPs and physios and that. Yeah. One of my big things is opening myself to people who want to talk and to support. I give my time away <laughs> in that case for ex-vis and things yeah. like that. You know what I mean? And that's really important. So, you know, by all means, if... If that conversation helps you in your purpose and your career in this industry, you know, that's what we're here to do. Follow them up. That's it. Start training. Start. Love it. Well, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today, mate. It's been sensational. It's been a pleasure, Matty, as I always, always. I learn something every time we sit down. <laughs> that's it. Uh, until next week, team, make sure you share this to someone who you think this may have an impact on, and we will speak to you soon. How good's living?